I uh, ended up waking up on my couch and I'm choking on my puke and I can't stay awake. I crawled to the uh, kitchen sink and I got up there on the sink and I'm like trying not to fall back and I had some duct tape and I duct taped my arm to the faucet and just like hung there. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to another episode. I'm here today with Daniel Ritchie, How you doing? Uh, a uh, person in long-term recovery. Uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. So what's your date? Uh, my uh, my sobriety date, clean date, recovery date is uh, November 1st of 2016. So on the first of this month, I had uh, three years and three months. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, heck of a yeah. story. Can't wait to uh, let everybody hear it. Uh, but let's start. Let's go back to the beginning and kind of talk about how, how things were yeah. growing up and, and what got you to the lows and then to the highs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I didn't have like my parents weren't on drugs. You know what I'm saying? If anything runs in my family, like they say addiction runs in your family. But if there's anything that runs in my family, it's mental health. Okay. So Which the show is huge in the mental health. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. So so I have a cousin, I have a really big family, and I have one cousin um on my mom's side that because that's who we were closer with, is uh who also had some alcoholism issues when he was younger. But other than that, serious mental health issues in my family going way back. I mean, my mom has has been um had dealing with with depression, severe depression and severe mental health issues for most of her life and still does right now. I had an aunt that committed suicide. I had a great uncle that committed suicide. And and it just goes on and on into the mental health. But nobody who really suffered from like addiction or alcoholism like I did. Okay. Now were you uh so you saw that first, I did. firsthand with, I did. with what mental health can do and, and where it can go. Yeah. And that, that was probably the, one of the first things that really affected me when I was younger was seeing my mom when she couldn't get out of bed or she couldn't stop crying or going to the hospital because they had to get her medications right. You know, and and me being the kid that I was, I was acting out. I was a, I was I was a diagnosed with ADD. So I was I was put on medication at a young age, too. Which, uh, you know, so I like to say, like, that was my first exposure to uh, to drugs was because they medicated me before they really – Ritalin, obviously, was uh, something they put out there. But I was exposed to it very early. Yeah, I, I got put on it at, like, six. Yeah, yeah. I was it, think I was in uh, second grade. Yeah. yeah. And, and looking back on it, you know, I don't know if it even helped. And I know you were on somebody else's show. You kind of talked about this, yeah. that it could potentially adversely affect you. Yeah. And I never even thought about that. I don't even know if it did. It, it could have been a catalyst for me doing all the mm-hmm. crazy shit that I did, yeah. you know? So it's it sparked that. Right. You know? yeah. And so I don't know at a young age if it, if it helps or not, but yeah, it's, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I, I was always real athletic, you know, they, they said I was hyper, but I think I was, I was always real athletic. So, um, you know, I pursued sports. I was an excellent swimmer. I, I was an excellent boxer at a young age. I fell in love with boxing was probably the sport that I've, I've loved my entire life. And uh, I, I, that was one of the first things. Kids were getting books out of school on, on, on war or whatever it was or, or woodworking. And I was getting boxer books. Like I wanted to know the history of boxing and everything. So what, what brought that 
interest in me just seeing it for the first time. I and I just loved the, f- I liked fighting. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I liked fighting my, for me, but I just, I loved, I felt, I liked the way they looked. They were, they looked like peak athletes. Like that's what I wanted to look like. I liked the fact that they were respected was a big part for me. I like, they were always respected and feared. And even though I didn't realize that at a young age, what that really was, I was drawn to it. How young? As young as I can remember. Second, okay. again, second, third, really? fourth grade. Yeah, yeah. And so, how are how are things going at that point? I mean, you mentioned that you know, uh, sports. Yeah. Sounds like there was aggression mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. What, where what sparked that? Um, the aggression. I don't. I, I was just always a short tempered kid, okay. and immediately I would go to physical, being physical with people. I was a kid. I was always getting in trouble for fighting. I was always fighting kids in the neighborhood. I was everything was physical. I loved hockey because it was physical. You know, we played street hockey, and I loved street hockey, but I loved that I could get physical with people. Were you, was there, looking back, do you think there was anger behind that, or do you think it was just straight up like to hit people? Yeah, I just liked, <laughs> I think I just liked to hit people. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, it wasn't that, I didn't bully people, um, but I would like, but if, if, if we were going to argue, that's how it went. Like, there, I didn't like to argue, I liked to fight. Because I wasn't very good at arguing, I was never good at uh, uh, at the at the yo mama jokes or anything right. like that. It was I was okay, cool, let's go, you know, and you know, that's that kind of just stemmed into to how majority of my adolescence did until I, uh, you know, I, I was getting suspended from school for fighting. Um, when my dad, when my father lost his job, we went. My family's originally from New York, uh, my dad's side, so we go back to New York and. Um, I remember that was a, a big, like, fear trigger for me, too. Another one of the, it was like a, a moment, kind of just brought up, like, that panic feeling, like, when I used to see my mom like that and all that stuff, and I would... Uh, so that's where you were born and raised? Yeah, I was born. Okay. I was raised here in Cincinnati. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, in okay. Cincinnati. We moved here when I was really young, okay. so... But um, we went back there because my uncle owned some bars and stuff. And, uh, you know, again, I, I was exposed to some of that life... That drinking life, that street life, and I was drawn to it, just like I was, uh, you know, boxing and, and stuff like that. I was drawn to, to uh, that life, I, the way they smoked. You know what I'm saying? It was just, you know, they would fight. They just are so careless, and and you know, I'm already getting into girls, and I'm like, these guys got girls around them. And what what age is this? Uh, about twelve. Okay, twelve. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm and uh, I start kind of just experiment with alcohol just a little bit you know nothing to where i was like getting like so drunk i was falling over yet but i was experimenting with alcohol because everybody drank and you had access yeah and it was at a bar and i'm sweeping up cigarette butts and and i'm doing what kids do you know and uh i just kind of and i i you know in in some of the other programs that that i'm involved in we always talk about our first drink so that's kind of why i bring that up that was my technically my first drink but things really didn't get out of control until I, I moved back here. Cincinnati um, started uh, in junior high school. Okay, so you were there from – back to New York About from what? eight months. Oh, okay. Six months. Okay. Six months so or long. so. Yeah, okay. not long. Not All right. Long. Yeah, it wasn't long enough to really do uh, do a lot, but I saw like things – like I don't know if it was – it was an experience. So when you get back, you've been in the bar scene kind of cleaning up and, mm-hmm. and seeing what it's all about. Yeah. 
So you get back here, and what environment are you in? Are, are you, you you don't right back to the neighborhood? Okay. You know, the na- and our neighborhood wasn't. It wasn't a rich neighborhood. It wasn't a poor neighborhood. It was. A, it was a rough, you know, white collar working man neighborhood uh, where I grew up. So you know, kids fought in the streets. We, you know, did everything. We we stuck on our streets. We. We only hung out with kids that we grew up with. Like, you know, that's that's how it was on our streets. Like it was street versus street. Even though it was a suburban neighborhood, it was that's how it was, you know. And and um so we were all really tight. We were like brothers. And so, and we were all the same age. Like all of us were the same age. Our little brothers were the same age. It was it was um it was good. But I, I was uh, ended up being the kid that was a. Uh, like, let's get into your mom's liquor cabinet. Like, you got to feel So you this. had that bug when you came back. Yeah. I and mean, it was there. Yeah. So, you know, we start raiding liquor cabinets. We start, um, you know, stealing cigars off the neighbor's porch or or whatever. And we're smoking. And, and then, um, you know, I start junior high school. And that's kind of where things really started changing for me. You know, and, and I used to think that maybe I was different. But I think that a lot of kids experience adolescence. I just think that the difference between me and some of those other kids was I have always, from that day forth, found a solution in a substance. It was like I can belong. I didn't feel like I belonged. But when I would go out with the kids drinking, I then I belonged where they were. I didn't no longer feel like an outsider. So I linked up with the kids that were drinking, that were sneaking out at night because they were having fun. They had the girls. They were smoking. And that's what I was drawn to. Even though I was still playing sports – Sports slowly started taking this back burner because this life is what I really want. This is these are the cool kids, you know, and and that's uh, eventually how, um, you know, things has got things has got progressing. I'm a progressive person in life. I think like I'm just never happy where I am. I'm always striving for more. And at a young age, I didn't know how to contain that, so I turned to drugs. Well, what's the best way to uh, make money and be more popular? Well, sell drugs. So I became a very good drug dealer, and um, I linked up with some. And this guy. is high school. This is this is uh, eighth grade. Oh, eighth, sure. ninth grade was when okay. I started. Yeah. yeah, eighth grade was when I first started uh, selling drugs, and it was uh, my first things I sold were uh, I would I would sell some cocaine here and there, but mainly marijuana and acid. So those were the main things I sold. Um, Got in with some uh, some of the bigger drug dealers in the neighborhood, and uh, I'm starting to sell bigger weight. I'm starting to do more, and um, I ended up selling to a confidential informant who uh, set me up. Not about he actually set me up three times, but the third time they uh, picked me up in a van um, with an undercover. And I I recognized him as a cop. He was a cop that had been harassing me. They didn't plan it very well. And um, needless to say, I got my first four felonies wow. at that age. I was uh, just had turned 15 years old. And so what was the ramifications of that? Where did- um, I did about uh, 90 days in uh, 2020, the juvenile jail and um, probation. And then like some other like rehab classes, like outpatient classes I had to attend, anger management, uh Things like that. They were trying to pinpoint it down. I don't think they knew how to deal with it as well as they do today. I think they just were like, oh, give them, show them to the D.A.R.E. program. Try to scare them straight. You know right. what I'm saying? It wasn't yeah. a lot of education. It was just, I just met more people that were like me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Did you uh, go right back? 
Um, I didn't right away. I actually uh, decided that, you know, I should probably straighten up. Um, and I, um, the same guy to, to the guy who uh, was the confidential confidential informant, he actually lived right down the street from the high school. And when, after what happened to me, kids started harassing him because he was a snitch. You know, I mean, yeah. that's what they labeled him as. And that's, you know, they, they, they figured out, you know, they found out it was him. And they started harassing him. Well, because they harassed him because of what happened to me, all eyes were on me. One day before school, he pulls up. One of the kids yelled at him. They, I think they yelled snitch or something. And he jumps out of his car with a box cutter and comes at me. And I'm a kid. I'm only 15. And uh, I tried to fight him. Well, he jumps back into his car and drives off. Needless to say, he drove straight to the police station, signed an affidavit that I'd been harassing him and tried to attack him in his car. The police <laughs> did not believe me. And they didn't have, want to interview the witnesses yet, so they immediately charged me with a felony too, intimidation of a witness, and they threw me into a, a stay center. So well, I was without even hearing your side of it, not even hearing it yet, no. And in this stay center, I was physically abused for months, um, and I became very angry. And I did actually, they did actually drop the charge because uh, his story didn't add up. And I actually got my story and I had witnesses. So eventually they dropped the charges, but the damage but you was had, done. Yeah, you had to go through a shit storm yeah. up until that point. What yeah, and, and I was incredibly angry. And I immediately went back to the streets. And not only that, but now I'm like full go. I'm like, this is this is the, my life now. Like a loaded gun, man. Yeah, Just... and, and I was. I started carrying a gun. I started uh, running with other people in other neighborhoods. I started selling bigger weight. I started doing more. And within about a year of that, I had uh, caught four more additional felonies. And they ended up sentencing me to uh, two years to uh, five years in the in the Department of Youth Services. So it's considered juvenile life. Right. So you just had to do more time yeah, I ended up in doing the juvie system. Years. Yeah, almost two years in uh, Cuyahoga Hills Boys School in Cleveland, Ohio. Right, so they which, shipped you out of here. They shipped me out. I, I mean, I was acting up. I mean, I was still angry when they got me. I, I was fighting kids in, D- in uh, 2020. I was I assaulted staff, a staff member in the uh, in the intake, which is between like they send you from the juvenile jail in, in the city to uh, a place called Circleville Youth Center, where they assess you and figure out where they're going to send you. So they sent me to the worst one. Let's just put it that way. And um, so I had to fight there too for about two years. It was uh, started out as a uh, as a boot camp. So it's like a boot camp, and then uh, and then after the first year, they ship me into like a uh, a different pod, which was like a a drug addict pod. I tried to convince them I was this big drug addict, which they as didn't, opposed to a a drug dealer. Dealer, okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, were you was your use progressing? Were you using cocaine and getting rowdy while you were selling um, I was it? Started or did snorting you... pills and stuff okay. there at the end, and or, or there I wouldn't say the end, the end of that. Right. I was snorting pills. I I. I was a big, you know, don't get high on your own supply. You know what I mean? So, but I did. I smoked a lot of weed. You know, I would smoke about a half an ounce a day. No shit. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because I would buy a box of Optimos every day, five cigars, and I would smoke those, a box every day. So, but I was selling enough to be able to maintain that. Sure. You know, and uh, so I was definitely, I'm glad it happened when I was still a juvenile because the road I was on was not good. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, if it would have happened, you know, if I w- if they would have waited till I was eighteen, there was my my partner that I used to run with. They finally caught up to him when he was nineteen, and uh, he ended up doing six years. His first wow. bid, six years. 
Same charges I had. No shit. Just happened to fall on the other side of... It just happened to become an adult by the time they got him. Okay, so post-18, let's get into that period. So so I got out of DYS. They let me out a week after my 18th birthday. They didn't hold me until I was 21. Um, Because the last year I was there, I I straightened up. I was like, you know what? They told me I'm going to be a statistic, and I refuse that. I'm not going to adult jail. So I straightened up. I got out. I started pursuing little jobs here and there like anybody. I'm trying to to find my niche in life. Um, And... I ended up uh, – one of the things that I fell in love with while I was in jail was I was working out. There was this kid. His name was Denver Pruitt. Buffest kid I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, hey, you know, let's be friends. And he'd be like, cool. So we would do thousands of push-ups every day, thousands. So I fell in love with working out. So I continued that passion when I got out. And then I decided, you know what? I want to be a personal trainer. I think that would be a great job to have. So I started uh, becoming a per- – uh, you know, pursuing a career as a personal trainer. I – Found a gym um, to start working at, and they wouldn't hire me, so I started working for free. And also around that same time, I uh, like I, I still had the passion for fighting. I fought a lot when I was in there, and I still had that. I still I still loved that. So I fought in my first Tough Man show, and uh, you know, just being the kid that I was, my license was suspended at the time um, because I did catch like a misdemeanor when I um, when I was eighteen and. Uh, they, um, so I went up to Dayton, Ohio and fought in the hair arena in the tough man show, but I caught a, uh, I had a Frank take me up there and drop me off. I had no money, no food. And I fought for two days. Basically I fought in both days because it's a tournament style fights. They don't do those anymore. And, um, so around that same time, so I was like, that's what I want. I want to be a fighter. You know what I mean? I'll be a personal trainer and I'll be a fighter. I'm starting to figure out what I'm going to do here. So, um, I became a personal trainer. Very successful personal trainer. I ended up working for a company that was in Cincinnati, Ohio that was around for a while. It's not there anymore. I was the first person to work for that company without a four-year degree or more as a trainer. I didn't go to any college or anything. I just became – I just got – tried to master my craft, and I got a good following. And on top of that, I was also started training in mixed martial arts. So, you know, back when I was about 22, 23, mixed martial arts wasn't what it was – is today. It hadn't hit that point to where it was socially accepted yet. It was it was a taboo sport. Animals um, kind of huh? thing. Yeah. Anim, you know, just crazy. Guys were fighting in karate geese. You know yeah. what I mean? And they were like, uh, they were a jujitsu guy and a wrestler. Like, it wasn't a fighter versus a fighter. It was no a gloves, specialty. I mean, just, yeah. yeah, hands wrapped real thin if, right. if any gloves and optional mouthpiece. No athletic commission involved at all. Guys right. would weigh 30 more pounds than the other guy. You know right. what I mean? You just you did it on a handshake sometimes. And, um, you know, I had my first fight and I fought this guy. He's put, he was he had done a couple of jujitsu things, and he was supposedly like a an, a war veteran, marine, yada yada. This big guy, he was supposed to be real tough, and I ended up beating him in about forty five seconds. <laughs> so he didn't even hit me. So he actually never even fought after that. I, I don't know if I broke his spirit or what, but um. And, so so uh, are, you're slowly learning that you might have something here. Yeah, yeah, you know, talent. Yeah, like maybe I'm maybe I'm okay at this. Like I'm like I thought I just stone haymakers and right. so I started falling in love with the sport. And at the same time it was like fit worked perfect because I was making my own schedule as a trainer. So these guys are like, "Cool, Daniel, we want you to pursue as a fighter cuz now they can use my name to help promote their business." Um, not to mention I was I I've always been a self-promoter. So I used to go out. The reason I got popular as a fighter was 
not because I was better than anybody else, so to say. It was because I put myself out there more than anybody else. I would go to the bars. I would go to the clubs. I'd meet people. I'd po- put up posters, hand out flyers, and they all had me on them. And then people would be like, oh, cool. I'd be like, come fight, you know, sell them tickets right there on the spot. And and also, like, I didn't dress like everybody else. Everybody else wore their hooded sweatshirt. They came out in their sweatpants. They walked out to uh, whatever song was popular at the time. Like, nah, no, no, no. I wore a Manchester gray hoodie with designs all over it, some Adidas pants, and some leather shoes. And I'd walk out to Here I Go Get On My Own by Whitesnake. And I would let it build. And everyone loves that song. So people used to love it. So... Uh, not only that, but I was good. I did train hard. I practiced. I, I was in the gym twice a day. They told me, they said, Daniel, you'll never be a champion because I want to be a champion. If I'm going to do this, I want to go all the way. They said, Daniel, you'll never be a champion. You don't know how to wrestle. I said, okay, well, I'll learn how to wrestle. So I brought in collegiate wrestlers I knew, and we wrestled twice a week until I was wrestling, until I was out wrestling them. You know, so... I always figured out a way. Like, they can't tell me I can't do this. I survived this childhood I had, and they don't even know about that. Right. So we'll see. We'll see where this takes me. Yeah. So how, so how, where did it take you? How did it go? Well, I, I did really well. Um, I got my first, uh, so it, it went well. I, I, I've had some really good fights. You know what I mean? I fought some really good guys. Back then, there was only like three shows in the Midwest. So I'm fighting guys from Lower Indiana, Detroit, Michigan, New York, um, kind of and, on like a circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there wasn't a show every week in, in every city at that time. Right. So, you know, I'm starting to build a little name for myself and, and I'm doing well. And, and they say, hey, Daniel, we want to give you a shot at the 170-pound title. Um, it's going to be vacant. Uh, the guy named Dom, he was moving on. And I'm like, okay. Um, they're like, but you got to fight this guy from lower Indiana. Um, and I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And so they, I remember seeing this guy at the weigh-ins and he was just – I was like, I remember being, I didn't even know I was fighting him yet, but I was like, damn, whoever's fighting that dude, dude is jacked. And they were like, that's your fight. And I was like, what? I was like, did he even make weight? They're like, well, he weighed in at 185, but you fight him at 170. And I was at 170. And I was like, okay, I'll fight him. They were like, so we come out and, and, and the fight's about to start. And I look at my corner and I say, any, 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 any last word? You know what I'm saying? They're like, <laughs> don't get hit. And I'm like, no shit. Oh, <laughs> so now my nerves are going because, I mean, the buildup for a fight is totally different than the street because you have adrenaline, a high rise, and you have dumps, then you have fear, then you have doubts, then you have confidence. And it's, it's a big circus. So so I'm getting really nervous because I know this guy's really good at what he does, and he's he's scary looking. And comes out, hits me. And I'm just – I remember being like <laughs> – it was like one of those moments like where you see in the movies like where a song comes on and the guy's just floating in the air. It was like it was unreal how hard this guy hit me. I've never to this day been hit that hard. So I shoot in for a double and I pick him up and when I go to slam him, I, I was like, I have to put him on his neck because he's gonna kill me. And uh, I ended up breaking my shoulder. So we go back, I, I lay on him the first round, we go back to my corner. After that, we come back out for the second round. I throw a jab, I realize that my arm is not in socket. Um, so I started throwing kicks I, and I la- ended up leg kicking about four or five times. He ended up quitting. Really? So I won by TKO. So, um, that was my coolest fight. With one arm. Yeah. With one arm. No <laughs> you know? pretty awesome. So I ended up getting, uh, that next day I went to the, to the hospital. 
um, because I thought my arm was just out of socket. I didn't really understand because of my adrenaline. With that adrenaline, I didn't feel anything. I didn't really even realize how bad it was until I was in the back of the, of the show trying to put my T-shirt on. And I couldn't get my shirt on because my arm kept falling out of socket. And I was like, coach, I think something's wrong. <laughs> So we, we go to the hospital and, uh, you know, they're like, yeah, you have a bank hearts fracture and a torn labrum. Your shoulder's not staying in. You, you're going to have to have surgery. And uh, so here's um, we'll give you uh, here's 30 Percocets. Um, come back in a couple of days and we'll give you more. So I, I remember. But I, the thing was, is I remember taking those Percocets and I immediately felt like I, I needed to be back in the gym. Like, I got to be in the gym now. I don't know what it was about about those Percocets, but it was one of those things like that's what had been what I'd been missing my whole life. Like at that moment, this is what I've, I've needed my entire life. I can be champion in the UFC. If I can take these, I can do everything. Everything is going to be okay. You know what I mean? Like any depression I had, any doubts, anything. And, um, you know, I should mention it. I did love to party. It wasn't that I didn't party up to this point. I partied. I did a lot of ecstasy. I definitely partied a lot. I put myself in a lot of situations. But at that point, something changed. Wow. So And so how did that – so it progressed, I'm It assuming. did progress. And so how did that affect uh, you know, your life moving forward, yeah. fighting? Um, so I, I – uh, you know, as – I. You know, I'm t- I'm popping the pain medication, and then I, I ended up winning the title. I ended up defi- uh, defending it four times. Um, I ended up fighting in some other shows. Uh, I ended up fighting some other guys that were champions, some guys that are, are really good out there right now. I've, I ended up fighting. Were and you taking pills the whole time? I was popping pills the whole time, yeah. But really? I felt like I had it under control because I, I had it timed right, and I'm getting it from a doctor. I'm getting 300 Percocets a month. From a doctor because I need them to function. And they're like, well, Daniel, whatever you need to compete, here you go. And this is what year? Uh, this is in t- this started in 2009. Um, That's when they're just still just slinging and just yeah. starting. Yeah. I mean, right. you could go to your, you could just go to the ER and be like, my rib hurts. And they gave you a, a script for 30. You right. know what I'm saying? Vicodins right. at least or something. Right. So, sure. you know, and now I'm starting to figure out the game. Like, oh, you know, if I could, how do I get these little ones? And then, oh, well, I'm allergic to Tylenol, I think, doc. You know what I'm saying? So, so, and on top of that, I'm, I'm still a mountain. I'm still training hard. Like it's, it's nothing that anybody can see on the outside and it's something I'm getting. So I'm not even realize how addicted I'm getting. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking the pain medication and, and, uh, the first time I probably almost overdosed and died, it was after a fight and I, I blacked out. I'm drinking with them. I'm popping these pills. I'm popping everything. Anybody, anything's giving me, I'm putting it in my mouth and taking, and, um, I, uh, ended up waking up on my couch and I'm choking on my puke and I can't stay awake. And I crawled to, uh, I crawled to the uh, kitchen sink and I, and I got up there on the sink and I'm like trying not to fall back. And I had some duct tape and I duct taped my arm to the faucet and just like hung there until I could finally function. Cause I couldn't call anybody and tell them what I've been doing because wow. then they'll know that something's wrong with me. Or they'll think, or they'll judge me was how I put it at the time. So, like, so you, did you tape your arm up there just so you wouldn't lay down and yeah, choke? Yeah, so I wouldn't fall back on my back. No shit. Yeah. So <laughs> Pretty resourceful <laughs> yeah, for a guy. Yeah, it was a pretty good idea ever. at the time. I don't know where it came from, but you know what I mean? MacGyver type shit. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So it was just more of like just duct tape on the fall. So I just right. was like hanging. But um, then, uh, you know, 
to fast forward a little bit, it just yeah. continued to progress. I um, ended up filling two prescriptions too close. I, I tried to start doctor shopping because now they weren't enough. Um, the last fight I actually had, I snorted two Percocet 30s off the top of a toilet uh, while they were calling my name. Because I knew that if I timed it right, that I could, uh, th- by the time I walked into that cage, by the time that bell rang, I'd be exactly where I wanted to be. Because I needed that feeling. Like, I needed that. You know, I think that I suffered from a lot of the mental illness. I think I still do sometimes. But to me, it, it masked all that. It gave me the confidence. Right. Now, it just happened to be that I was a fighter and it happened to be at the time that it helped. But it wasn't until I got cut off that things really started affecting me. Now, no doctor seeing me. I'm red flagged. You know, I can't get to a pain clinic. I don't have my pain's not bad enough. Um, I started mixing speed into the mix. Before I know it, I'm, I'm, I'm snorting bath salts and I'm up for three or four days and I'm still trying to schedule fights. I'm trying to still see my family and things aren't happening. Um, what really set me over the edge, though, I kind of missed this little aspect, was uh, the personal training company I worked for. Uh, they had me come sign some paperwork one day. They had me re-sign my clients. And uh, they ended up taking my business out from underneath me. Everything that I built, everything I'd worked for. And it, and it sounds like something you'd be able to like get back, but I couldn't get it back. I, I messed up. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing I could do about it. And um, that moment was when I... When, when uh, those Percocets, those opiates became my solution to everything in life. Because when I put that in me, nothing else mattered. You know, I didn't care about the business I lost. I wasn't worried about paying these bills anymore. Like I would try to get them paid, but it wasn't a big concern. I was cool. I'll be good, you know. And um, things just started progressing, like I said, from there. And, and I'm just like I'm oxycotton. Anything? I started mixing ox. I started buying oxys. Uh, oxy thirties were the first ones I ever bought. Then the forties. Then opanas. Then um, I started mixing with Adderall because uh, it wasn't enough. I needed more. I need more. Whatever this is, I'm feeling. I need more of it. And uh, now, now I'm, I'm the pills are running up. Around that same time in 2012, I think it was 2013. They. Uh, you know, because this went on for a few years there, they started shutting down that Florida pipeline. So next, what comes up? Hey, Daniel, you know, you get heroin, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing It's just sadly how so many stories end. Yeah. Because the pills get too expensive and. Yeah, it was too know. much. I couldn't afford it anymore. Right. I'm barely working. I'm taking so many pills too that people offered me positions at, at gyms. I mean, I still had the reputation I had. None of that had been squashed yet, but. I couldn't function. I was nodding off while training people because the uh, because it was not, when I first started taking those OCs, man, those were hit hard. You know what I mean? I did one ready for it, I, but I needed it. And, um, you know, it was everybody else's fault. It wasn't my fault. It's it's the they should have never done what they did to me. The doctors so, so this anger is still there. It is Defiance. still there. The anger is coming out of me now. I'm beginning this victim mentality, this entitlement. This delusion, like I deserve to be doing what I'm doing because of what I've been through, because of what others have done to me. They've done this. I'm I'm set the I'm I'm supposed to fail in life. I was like convinced that my story's almost over. Yeah. You know? One of the things uh I had a counselor point out to me not that long ago. So my mom used to bless her heart. She never meant for the, me to, to feel this way. But she used to tell me that I reminded her of my Aunt Nancy. And my Aunt Nancy committed suicide when I was a very young 
when I was like one or two. And I think that be, that kind of instilled this, you're going to die young in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I kind of always had this drive. Like I have to go hundred percent now because I'm going to die young. Like none of this really matters anyway, because I'm going to die anyway. Wow. You know, I'm not going to live long enough to enjoy it. And, um, so I think that that kind of played a lot into that. Yeah. So you had like a finite thought process of shit's going to end at some point. Exactly. I might as well run hard. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Like if I, you know, if this is how rock stars die, you know yeah. what I mean? Like that, that type of mentality. Like if, you know, uh, if you want to live life on your own terms, you got to be willing to crash and burn. Uh, if you, Motley Crue said that, right. you know? And, and so it was like, those were the quotes I lived by, not like inspirational quotes like i do today right. <laughs> you know what i mean and so and, what what well, let's talk about the end yeah what yeah what kind of so it brought it, you it, down it just kept spiraling out of control it got worse i'm driving for drug dealers i got ended up getting stabbed a couple of times i ended up overdosing and hit a telephone pole i ended up stealing from my family i ended up not being around anymore uh i ended up uh homeless beaten battered uh, I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror. It was anything and everything. I, I was I got addicted to duster cans. I, I I started shooting dope. You know, I started shooting crack. I started smoking meth. It was, I just whatever. Yeah, just whatever. I just I don't know. I, I couldn't control and I hated myself for it. And I continued to do it because I hated myself for it because nobody understood really what I was going through is what I felt. And, and the people like me, this is what we deserve. So if it came to something I expected, something I thought I deserved. Like, I don't deserve a good life. Look at me. I'm a piece of garbage. You know, like, I'm exactly everything that I used to maybe would look at and say, that's a terrible person. Right. And, uh, you know, and um, I went to rehab once and it, it didn't work out for me. So, you know, why am I going to go back to rehab? Uh, but... It was crazy. One of the biggest defining moments, and I try to tell this people, is, is that compassion. When, when someone's just that far gone or they think they are, somebody thinks that they're a broken, that they're completely broken and nobody loves them. And maybe they haven't even felt anything close to love in so long that just a little spark of compassion can change their life. And when I called the Center for Addiction Treatment, which was a treatment center I went to, Cincinnati, that, and, and uh, I expected them to be like Daniel you don't deserve to come back. You should have never left the first time. And I literally thought they were going to say that. And I called them in tears because I didn't want to do this anymore. I hit a point where I was, I was done. I just, but I didn't know how to be done. Right. And I, and she goes, baby, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to get you in here and it's going to be okay. And that, I remember that word for word because that moment, I, I haven't felt anything like that in so long. And even though it was only through a phone call, it changed my life. Like, I was like, holy shit. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. somebody. That little cares. tipping point you needed. Yeah. And I ended up getting back into treatment. I ended up staying for 30 days. I ended up uh, coming up with the conclusion that, you know what, I'm going to, um, I'm going to start taking suggestion because Daniel doesn't know what's best for him anymore. It doesn't matter if I once was a champion. It doesn't matter where I was once. This is where I'm at today. And I don't know how to do this. I hadn't showered in God knows how long when I went in there because I didn't shower. It wasn't important to me. So how do I learn how to shower again? How do I learn how to live again? Yeah, I haven't that's had people a hear, you know, this <laughs> life skills. You know, exactly. people, people hear this and they're like, oh, give me a break. Well, you break it down. Sometimes it is showering. Yeah. Making your fucking bed. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's for some people, it, 
you, that's where you got to go. You got to go back to square one and oh, yeah. figure out how to live a life that's productive. You yeah. Know? And that's where I was. Like, and what do I, and one of the biggest fears I had was what do I do with my life? All I know is combat sports, but I've been out in the streets. I've developed infections in my lungs. I've been stabbed, almost murdered. You know what I mean? I've overdosed. My body is beat to hell and back. Um, I ended up having to have a hip replacement. My body was so beat. Like I just had been running the streets. I was, I was not, I was a very big risk taker. You know what I mean? And, um, with, with, with stuff. And I ended up hurting myself in a lot of situations. And so fighting is probably going to be out of the option. Not to mention I'm 36 years old by the time I cleaned up. And, uh, you know, where do I even start with that? Like I had to, I had to rely on other people to help encourage me. Like I had to find a fellowship of people that were going to be like, Daniel, just do this and it's going to be okay. We got you. You know what I'm saying? We're here for you regardless of what happens. The point is, is that if you don't pick up today that, that you can do this one way or another, it's going to work out. It's going to have to work. It's going to have to. So I continued to do that. And I, I had some odd jobs and, you know, and I, I put myself in some bad situations. I had some good experiences early in recovery, but I just didn't pick up. I had hung out with people. They relapsed. I didn't. Some of them died. I didn't. And I started to, to, to believe in, in something better than myself, like greater than myself. And, I, and not that just too, but I started to believe in myself. Like I started to believe like maybe I can become something. Maybe I can do this. They say keep faith. Well, I'm going to give keep faith. I can't. No instant gratification. I know I want it now, but I got to chill. I got I to gotta trust this process. Trust this process. That's what did it for me. And you talk about little things like your phone call. And, you know, I had an aha moment when I was in treatment, but like trusting the process. First time I've ever done anything like that. Yeah. You know, so just being able to do that and fight through early recovery is a mother. You know, yeah. it is it is tough. Yeah. But if you're able to you're able to just relax for once. And like you said, take suggestions and, and yeah. listen yeah. to people. Yeah. When people said, Daniel, just. Relax and trust it. I, tr I trusted. And of course, I did had some self-will moments. None of us are perfect. Right. But but I, I started to believe in myself. Like I started looking back at my life and being like, Daniel, you've overcome so much. And you've made it this far. There must be some reason. It can't just be because God's trying to torture you. Right. By keeping you alive when so many other people are dying. And so I trusted the process. Um, in that process, I had a, a, a baby girl. You know, I have a wonderful family, um, but again, it, 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 which is which is incredible, incredible. Um, I've been able to help people in recovery, but one of the greatest things that has happened to me was, uh, you know, I spoke about that having that fear of of what the future brings. What what do I do with my life now? And um, about a year and a half ago, I get a phone call. You know, like I said, I'm a little over, uh, you know, a year and a half sober, and and. Still no idea what I'm going to do. I'm actually bouncing at a bar because I don't have many skills. I'm, I was, I've worked in bars most of my life, so I'm bouncing at a bar. I know that I can't do this forever, but I'm just holding on to something's going to happen for a 37-year-old man. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I get this phone call, and so somebody, uh, a woman named Brittany who, worked at, uh, who works at UC – and she goes, hey, Daniel, you know, we're, we're thinking, I know you're in recovery. I hope this is a, a, appropriate, but we're thinking about starting a program, um, you know, with, with uh, having like a mentor or somebody go next to people bedside and, and talk to patients about um, getting into treatment. Would that be something you'd be interested in? I was like, yeah, sure. That, sound, that sounds cool. So I, I 
do the process that they wanted me to do. And I get in there and I start shadowing their, their counselors, um, going into be- uh, hospital rooms, talking to patients who are in for ODs, substance, anything substance use related. I'm in there talking to them only four hours a week though. I would go in four hours on Mondays, but I loved it. And it was incredible. And within the first year, I got 57 people into tr- some form of treatment. And, uh, that was something that they had never done before. You know, like they had never had people who were getting people into treatment. Like they handed them a list of resources and said, good luck. I myself exactly. went to UC one time and they handed me a prescription for clotidine and said, good luck. <laughs> we don't do that here. Right. Here's a list of rehabs. And I, I don't even think I looked at the list. And I think I took the clotidine and I stayed clean for about three weeks. But I didn't know what I was doing, you know, and um, so I, I did was on that featured on a news story about an MMA fighter who fell into heroin addiction and uh, which was a big hard thing for me to do was to be coming out to the news and to the public that I had failed was how I looked at looked at it. But instead, instead, I had to take a perception like it wasn't that I failed. It was that I have overcome and I've succeeded at something. Right. And I started getting some job offers. One of those job offers ended up being a, a full-time um, linkage coordinator and peer navigator with the university with the early intervention program at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center. So, um, man, I found my purpose. <laughs> Very yeah. interesting too, because I don't want to speak for other hospital systems, but I've never heard anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it's very it sounds like a very not only needed but crucial thing to, to be at somebody's bedside when they're woke. You know, yeah, waking up out of a you know, overdose or an infection mm-hmm. or, or s- yeah. something like that, as opposed to you know them going home and trying to find treatment. You're yeah. almost shepherding them directly into it, which is really cool. Yeah, so I'm able to go in there and show them like, hey, look, I'm I'm in recovery because I, I know when I've been in the hospital, I've always had my guard up because immediately you're like, these people are judging me. They're not going to treat me right. They're going to throw me out of here. They're not going to treat my my illness. I'm really sick or I'm really hurt. Uh, so immediately their guards up and I'm able to go in there and let them know it's going to be okay. They let me in here. <laughs> you know what I mean? They gave me a key. So it's going to be okay. You're, t- you have a great doctor with you today or whatever it may be. Do you and feel then, like that's making, I mean, you feel like that's helping people? Definitely. I as mean, as far I've, as putting have, the guard down and yeah, I get an average of three to six people into treatment a week. So just partner, partnering no, with other facilities around. Yes. Get yeah. them straight. Straight from there to there. My goal is to get them straight from the ED or from the ed- being admitted in the hospital into treatment. Um, things have, have expanded. Like you should, like I've, I've helped people get into sober livings. I've helped access foundations to pay for people who are coming off the street to get them into sober living so they can get a job and, or they can get into treatment or helping them. And I don't discriminate treatment. Whatever you think you need, whatever you're willing to do, I will make happen one way or another. Inpatient, let's make it happen outpatient suboxone let's make it happen and so you are basically a social worker without having a social work degree <laughs> kind so, of so yeah. you, i mean you do discharge planning um i don't really do discharge planning so to say but i mean you help yeah i mean help looking for treatment is, yeah, in yeah, my yeah. opinion is yeah discharge planning yeah. Or, or at least prepping them for the right yeah. you know steps on the you know getting where they need to go yeah and sometimes i work with social work um, or I work with the doctors. Like I actually, have, I've had doctors who call me and update me on patients because they know what I'm working on for this person. You know what, what I mean? Like I've become part of the care team. That's success right there, man. 
yeah. coming from, you know, the street and homeless to, you know, communicating daily with yeah. docs. Yeah. You know? Pretty and, awesome. Yeah. And like I, I, was, I was saying a little earlier when we were talking, like the hardest thing for me to do was to be enough, confident in myself enough to know that this is where I belong to be, where I belong. Like I've earned my spot here to speak with these doctors right. and not in a cocky way or anything, but like I can go to a room who of, of a guy who's, who's been coming off the streets, who has a sixth grade education and lo- knows nothing but prison and drugs and pain and, and, and misery and, and give this person a little bit of hope enough that I can do something to help them and then go right over to the, to, to the doctor's station and talk with the nurses and the doctors on their level too. And they're asking you for your opinion. Yeah. And they're and asking me for my opinion. Genuinely. Yeah. And, and awesome. I've been able to advocate for patients. Like there's been instances where some patients are, are possibly going to get discharged. I can't get them in this treatment until tomorrow. And they'll work with me to keep this person in a bed until I can get them into treatment. Like, do you feel like since you've been doing this that doctors that may have had fatigue and, you know, I see this person constantly, yeah. you know, just get out of my face. Do you feel like you're helping to change the stigma and yeah. helping people with compassion and humbly? Yes. Okay. Humbly. I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to be that light of hope. And I've had people tell me that, like, you know, they don't see the good side. Well, I'm the good side. This is what we can do. You know, I'm just another person who's suffered from substance use disorder, who's who's able to do something with it today. Like we do recover. And that's one of the things that they don't get to see, unfortunately. And trying to understand why they feel the way they do was easier for me than thinking that we are going to bump heads. Okay, why do you feel that way? What can I do to help? What can I do to change your perception? You know, let me help this person. If you can help me assist me in helping this person today. This person gets into treatment, you know, because I see more than this, this person, because I'm in recovery. I see someone's son who needs to get back because their parents are worried to death about them or their, or, or, or a girl whose kids are waiting at home for their mother. You know what I mean? Like I see that they don't get to see that, but they're also helping to save a life yeah, and exactly. keeping them from coming back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like how many times you want them to come here? Right. <laughs> Let you know, me you get, get them pissed help. Yeah. because you keep seeing these people, but let's do something. Yeah. You know, so I think you're making, I mean, that's a, yeah. such a cool, unique yeah. thing. And we're at the forefront of it. Our, our program's at the forefront. So we're working on trying to find a way to implement our structure and our, the way we do it. Because I, even though I'm classified as peer support, what I'm doing is peer intervention. So I'm not asking – I'm. we're not planning this. We see them. They come in for an overdose. I'm in that room within 20 minutes. Hey, man, there's a better life out there. You know what I mean? Like, look, we can do We can do anything you want right now. We can sit and we can talk. Or what do you – you know, or, or is there anything I can do to help you? What can I do to help you today? Are you tired of living like this yet? Because I can promise you that there's life is better out there for this. And I'm not telling you because of something I read in a book. I'm telling you from my experience. Which right there is, I mean, that is, that's, you relate with that person instantly. Yeah. They relate with you instantly yeah. as opposed to talking to a nurse or a doctor immediately. Yeah. You know what I mean? So do you, yeah. are you met with defiance and you get out of my face or do you, th- do you think it's um, a little bit everything? Uh, I'd say that has happened a handful of times. I mean, at this point, I've spoken to hundreds of people. And most people are done. Most people have been receptive at the time. Um, You know, unfortunately, fighting what we're fighting right now is a losing battle. You know what I mean? And I came into this knowing that. 
Um, now the successes are incredible, but there's also the ones that don't make it, sure. you know, and, and it's, and it's, it's one of those things. Like I focus on, on the success. I focus on the connections. Cause I remember that one time, like I said earlier, that that lady showed me just that little bit of compassion. So that's what I try to show somebody. So I don't know when the last time was that somebody said, baby's going to be okay. Now, I might not say baby, sure, but you know what no, I mean? Understood. But I'm letting them know like, Hey, it's, it's going to be okay. Let me help you. I'm here for you. I care. If nobody told you they believe in you today, I do. Because I know what you're capable of. Right. And like you said, some people may have be hearing that for the first time ever in their yeah. entire lives. Yeah. You know, because they've been beat up and yeah. neglected and whatever else. Yeah. Okay. So you're helping tons of people, thousands of people. <laughs> what are you doing? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your recovery? Um, I mean, I, I go to a couple meetings a week still um, to kind of work on myself. And just because I know that that's what I did early and I know that if I don't, then there's a possibility that I may not, that I may lose focus. Right. Um, what I do is a work is, is, is majority of my recovery. It takes a lot of my time and I'm, I'm passionate about it. And I have a, a lot riding on me. This whole program, um, you know, is riding on me. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's important to me. I'd like to spend time. I get up. So let me walk you through. I get up every day at 4 a.m. and I go to the gym. I'm at the gym by 5 a.m. I'm at work by 7 um, I enjoy spending the rest of my day uh, after work with my daughter. So my daughter's will be two in April. Awesome. Um, she's just the light of my world. I just, you know, I'm 38 years old, man. I thought that was out the window. You know what I mean? That was actually one of the things I like, I don't have a family. Like I have a family today. Like I have this little beautiful baby girl, healthy, sassy, yeah. funny. You know what I mean? I just, I love her so much. You know, I don't think I, you know, people talk about kids like, Never thought I could love anything that much. It's just I never thought I could love like that. Like it's just a love like I've never experienced. I've loved before, but not like it hasn't been like that. You know what I'm saying? And it's and, and that's like I mean it's crazy. It was like the baton was passed. You had her, and then you got healthy. Yeah, you know what I mean. Right around the same time, right? Well, I she was I I was a uh, a year over a year sober when we had her. Okay. Yes, because I she's but, almost but two. Still, I, I mean that's I mean something that catapults you. To continue a oh, healthy yeah. life, you know. Oh yeah. And God willing, she'll never, you know, she'll never experience. And that's what I love. Yeah. Is my kids were young enough that they didn't see or understand what was going on. Yeah. With with me and, and my drug use and yeah. being nuts, but knowing that they never have to deal with that. Yeah, they never have to see it. Like, right. The fact that I that I that sh as long as I keep doing what I'm doing, that she'll never have to see that side of me is definitely motivating. Yeah. Okay, brother. Well, uh, thanks for being uh, brave enough to share your story. I know you've done it a lot, but uh, it means a lot that you came and did it with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for everything you do and uh, you know, continue the march, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you for uh, putting our voices out there. Yeah, you got it. All right. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.